did pot and methamphetamine for 20 years straight. And once I did methamphetamine, it got to where I didn't want to do nothing else but meth and pot. Welcome to episode one of season two of the podcast, the 33 in the episode today, we'll be talking about Jackson, one of the 33 individuals interviewed by Dr. Shukla, who wrote the book, Methamphetamine, A Love Story. Story so many of you are talking about. A man says he ordered a meal at a fast food restaurant in Skyatook, only to find meth in his order. The customer was video chatting with his girlfriend when he opened up his meal. And he found a bag of drugs. This was at a Carl's Jr. in Skyatook, Oklahoma. And you have a couple of other items that have occurred around the nation regarding uh, the meth issue in this uh, country. Yeah, just in the last literally like week, there have been two different busts that led to seizures of significant quantities of methamphetamine. Um, One of them last week, they found meth literally hidden in the children's booster seats. A canine team alerted the agents to more than 26 pounds of drugs inside the children's booster seats. The driver was arrested, the four children and their mother were released. Mm. And we've talked about the decrease in price, but the street value of almost, you know, almost 30 pounds is $60,000, which is way lower than what it was at the time of the the study. Um, Mm. And then in another seizure, they had a minivan that was pulled over in this vehicle. They had a driver. They had four children under the age of seven, and they found 120 pounds of meth that were seized. And so it's interesting that more and more people seem to be trafficking meth um, using children as kind of like a decoy to try to avoid detection. And I'm thinking uh, this gentleman at Carl's Jr. was also probably dropping meth in bags that were probably intended for a particular person and probably made the mistake of putting it in the wrong bag. (laughs) And this is why he probably got caught. Well, tell me why you think the cost, the estimated cost of that one particular recent bust is lower than what it was when you did your interviews. Well, I mean, we know that the price of methamphetamine has gotten cheaper over the years, especially after the cartels came in and flooded the market with meth that's being produced overseas. And so prices are dropping as these quantities are are becoming kind of astronomical. And we continue to think about alternative ways to deal with the drug problem. Obviously, we think of enforcement, which these situations we talked about already Um, are examples of, but then you also have like prevention and treatment. And so a couple things that I found this last week that are interesting have to do with some new types of approaches for dealing with, with people that are suffering from meth and addiction. And so in Portland, Oregon, they've spent $2 million trying to plan for what they're calling a meth stabilization center, where people will be able to come in and spend a few days and get mental health resources. And in San Francisco, they're also trying to plan a sobering center. So a sobering center might be a place where you just get to come and sober up for 24 hours, whereas this stabilization center would give you more time to come down from meth. And these were really fueled by um, large numbers of people coming into the ERs and overdoses and them saying, we got to have some other type of solution rather than just law enforcement and hospitals. And there's some discussion in California to have facilities where people can actually use but with a supervisor, somebody in the medical field or health field to be, uh, of course, present 
in the facility as they use. Right. And we've seen some of that. I think it was Vancouver that had these safe injection sites, you know, and all of this falls more under this umbrella of what we call harm reduction. So instead of just going after uh, drugs like a war, we've been in war on drugs for decades under this harm reduction approach that they kind of think more like, you know, what are some of the harms related to this and how can we address it from more of a public health approach? Well, now let's move into Jackson. He was a 38-year-old uh, male when you met him, a former dealer and manufacturer who was in the middle of serving a community sentence and living in a halfway house. He had a long history of mixing pot and meth, too. Right now, even though I've been clean for 18 months, I don't miss doing it as much as I miss the rush of manufacturing it and the money. What did Jackson share with you, Dr. Shukla, about his family background and his uh, current situation when you met him? Well, Jackson was um, raised by a single mother with his older sister. His father left when he was six months old and wasn't in his life, but he does describe his father as a convicted felon, though not for drugs. He thought it was robbery or something, but he wasn't really sure. Um, He was 38 years old at the time of the interview, and he was in this very rural community in this halfway house serving the very end of this six-month sentence that he was serving in the community that followed him being released from prison. Um, He had three children. He really only talked about two in the interview. He had a daughter who just graduated and recently got married, and he had a son who unfortunately follows his own path and ends up in addiction himself. And so Jackson is sitting in front of me in this kind of office type setting, literally facing 25 years on paper for the crime that he was convicted of. And he's at the very, very beginning of his journey re-entering the community at the time that we met. And Jackson, of course, uh, was dealing drugs. He cooked them. He used them. What else can you say about his use? I know that he mentioned in one portion of your interview that he was making up to $700 a day. I mean, that is absolutely remarkable. So what can you share about Jackson's intoxication to manufacturing? And of course, his intoxication to the money, which we've heard from many of your interviewees. Well, and Jackson, just kind of going, giving you a little bit of background about his drug use, you know, starts cigarettes at 13, becomes a heavy pill user, and basically is, like you said, using marijuana and methamphetamine pretty much daily for about 20 years. And so this addiction fuels him into this lifestyle that he gets into um, when he is, at the time that he's you know, meeting to us. And the goal was always just to stay high. And that's why he gets involved in, in methamphetamine and in dealing it and in making it. And when his use progressed, he progressed from, you know, smoking it. Unfortunately, in his case, he wasn't trying to try meth the first time. Somebody just put it on a joint and he tried it. Interestingly enough, in his case, also the first time he learned how to cook it, he wasn't seeking it out. Someone shows up at his house and is like, hey, I want to come and do this. And he, for some reason, allows him to do it in the bedroom. So he kind of, I don't know that he falls into it, but he finds himself pulled into this world through the peers he's hanging out with. And that's one of the things we keep going back to is who are people around and what are they doing? But in terms of the intoxication, you know, he just talks about it that basically says, 
what he liked about methamphetamine was the rush, the money. He said, I've been clean for 18 months and I don't miss doing it as much as I miss the rush of manufacturing it and the money. And he also talked about the adrenaline rush, even when you don't have the ingredients and you have to go out, this kind of hustle of getting everything you need together. So it's this whole kind of lifestyle that revolves around the consumption of the drug, but the lifestyle itself and all the facets of that become as intoxicating as the actual high of meth itself. They make it hard for me to get a driver's license. It will cost me a thousand dollars. Without any way to get back and forth from work, it's hard for me to come up with $1,000. Being a convicted felon on top of that, they say that people don't discriminate against convicted felons, but they do. So Jackson is 38 years old when you meet him. Correct. He has three kids. He is probably likely, correct me if I'm wrong, one of your older interviewees, do you recall? Yeah, I think he was, he, I think they ranged from 20s to 50s. So he kind of is toward that, that latter, middle to latter end. So he's in a phase in his life where as an addict, as a felon, because at this point, right, he's had um, a felony on his record. He's coming into this new world, if you will, with a lot of barriers, a lot of obstacles, Um, What can you talk about as far as those obstacles and those issues that he's facing at 38, trying to find work and, uh, but finding it difficult to come up with any money? Well, you know, and we'll, we'll start back with your, your comment a few minutes ago about the six to $700 a day. You know, we started this episode talking about the price of meth and the reduction, and you can think of what 26 pounds that they just seized or 120 pounds would have as a street value at $100 a gram. But here's someone who doesn't have a job. They don't have really education. He had some college, but that was it. He has a meth addiction. He knows how to cook meth. He knows how to create this thing. And yet here he sat in front of me on this, this kind of this cliff of the transition between moving out of the criminal justice system back into literally the same community in which he used drugs, in which he made drugs, in which he sold drugs, in which he grew up. And he even talks about the fact that everybody in the community, he said upwards of 75% would use meth or at least try it. And in his peer group, I mean, his extended peer group, he would talk about that I've known people for 30 years that are still using. Mm. So it was really... um, kind of scary for me sitting across from him thinking of what lay ahead of him when he gets out of this halfway house and returns literally to the same community that he did all of his criminal activities in. And statistically, if he goes back to the community where he committed these criminal acts or used or sold meth, his high, I mean, his chance of relapsing is very high. Absolutely. All the triggers that would be surrounding him. So why go back? I don't know the exact answer, but what I can kind of guesstimate is in his situation, it takes a lot of resources to up and leave. Even as a college professor, if I was going to move it, there's a lot of expenses involved. Jackson, at the time of his interview, had a suspended license. He didn't have a license, and it was going to cost him $1,000 to get the license back. And he talked about the fact that out of the 38 years that he's been alive, he's only had a legal license for 10 of those years. Mm. So a lot of his arrests and a lot of his involvement with the criminal justice system comes from this license that got suspended due to lack of child support. 
you know, because this is someone who's in a drug-immersed lifestyle and is, you know, focused on their addiction. And then he gets his driver's license um, suspended. He gets his hunting license taken away, his fishing license. And he talks about the hill that he has to climb to get that $1,000. You know, $1,000 may not sound like a lot to some people, but it is, I mean, it could be a million dollars to somebody that has nothing. And so how to come up with that just to get to a point where he could go back to work and start rebuilding his life. I mean, I don't know how he would make it or, or, you know, after the interview, I don't know what happened to him. And he was one of the interviews that I remember sitting at just being really kind of sad and fearful that I hope he makes it. You're listening to episode one. Season two of the podcast, The 33 Methamphetamine, a love story, a book written by my co-host and guest, Dr. Rashi Shukla, professor of criminal justice here at the University of Central Oklahoma. I'm David Nelson, a professor of mass communication here at UCO. In today's episode, we are talking about Jackson. He's a 38-year-old former meth cook at the time of his interview with Dr. Shukla, and he is now in the middle of transitioning from a 20-year life of drug use and cooking of meth but has some large obstacles in his way that he will need to maneuver. Dr. Shukla Jackson mentions the difficulty of moving on. We talked a little bit about his difficulties of moving on. Coming up with $1,000 is like, you know, an, an ant <laughs> climbing a, a mountain, especially for somebody who is coming out of a 20-year life of addiction. Right. So what can you tell us about Jackson and his sentencing and then, of course, his uh, criminal record? Well, Jackson, at the time of his interview, was two years into a 25-year on paper um, suspended sentence that he had. And again, he had served two years in prison and was in the halfway house and was transitioning out. Well, when I asked him about the number of times he'd been arrested, he knew it was more than five and he guessed about 10 but out of all of those arrests, only one was for a felony. Now you think about we go on a pendulum swing to go um, harsher and you know more lenient in terms of sentencing. So Jackson is getting caught with everything he needs to make meth in a car, including the receipts of everything he bought um, at this moment where the sanctions are really harsh. And so his only felony is this one time that he gets caught not making meth, but with everything in the car to make it. And he had talked about making it, you know, hundreds of times, even three, four times a day at the height of his involvement with meth. And so he gets convicted of this one endeavoring to manufacture charge, and he faces seven years to life in prison for it. And that's really what happened. And so he ends up with this 25-year sentence. But just imagine at 38 years old what it's going to take for someone like him, again, with no resources, no stability, no real marketable skills, and the addiction to meth and the knowledge of how to make it. And it's this, this really treacherous path he's on. So literally for the next 23 years, he can't go into a bar. He can't do anything that violates the law or he's going to get pulled back into the criminal justice system and possibly go back to prison. And when you say he was sentenced to up to 25 years, is that a suspended sentence where if he's brought back in, it kicks in? 
I believe so. Is that how that works? Right, right. They they sentenced him to 25 years on paper, mm. but because we often don't have enough space in the prisons, mm. they will give people a certain amount of time that they serve. You know, and anybody that goes to prison, let's say you have a 10-year sentence, you're not going to serve 10 years. You may serve mm-hmm. a couple years. And so his sentence was, you know, a, like a year and a half to two years on in prison. He actually went to the penitentiary, and then he gets put in this halfway house for six months, and then he's out now for 23 years on his own. And up to this point, he's getting monthly drug tests, and he even was one of the only people who was, like, you know, talking about the number of days that meth will still test positive in your system. And, you know, he talked Mm. about, I could drive 20 miles from here and go get it. Mm. So he's in this really treacherous moment of his life, and one of the downsides of this whole project is my inability to stay in contact with people to protect their anonymity, we just never took their names down. And so I'll never know what happened to Jackson, but he was one of the ones that I really hoped would make it, but had everything against him, you know? And it's sad that we can't maybe help people get a license or help them get some of what they need to try to transition better, you know, that we don't have a better net in place to help people. Yeah, many of these people have to turn to other resources like family. Right. You know, to get help. And if you don't have that, it becomes very difficult for you to get into, quote unquote, a normal you know, life that right. does not include addiction. There's more to life than drugs. It just took me a long time to figure it out. I mean, that's why I'm doing this interview, because, you know, if it can help somebody later on, that's good. Dr. Shukla Jackson had a family. His 20 years of using meth and cooking meth had its toll on his relationships and with his kids. What did he share about his life on drugs and how that affected his well-being and, of course, his relationships? You know, one of the quotes that he gave me during his interviews, he said, I'm 38 years old and sometimes I feel like I'm 50. And his teeth hurt all the time. Mm. He was one of the people that emerged from this life still with teeth, albeit probably rotted teeth that need to get pulled. And again, that's also something that's very, very expensive. If you don't have dental insurance or a free clinic, getting a single tooth pulled can be hundreds and hundreds, if not a thousand dollars. And so that's another one of the barriers he's facing. And he talks about when he got out of the penitentiary, he had nothing, not even his birth certificate. And he said, sooner or later, you will lose everything. He talks about how his his involvement with methamphetamine destroyed all of his relationships. And, you know, he also, he got fatigued. He got tired and he told everybody, I'm physically tired. I'm mentally tired. It was a very stressful life. It's a very fast-paced life. And that gets exhausting. But he talks at one point about the fact that his children lived with him up until he got arrested. You know, then he talks about cooking three to four times a day and the children not being around it, although he was cooking in the woods most of the time. So I don't have a lot of clarity on children and and where they were, but he says they were with him. And then when he got arrested, they went away. He lost his relationship with his daughter, who was graduating high school and getting married. And that was a big motivation for him to say, I've got to get my life together. And he talks about all the time that he wasted, you know, thinking that drugs were the answer and it was really his family that was more important. And unfortunately, by the time we met, his son had become an addict to methamphetamine and had just finished a stint in a three-month rehab in a bigger city in Oklahoma. This man was in a rural part of Oklahoma. 
where a lot of these drugs are flourishing. After the interview, it was interesting because sometimes people keep talking when we stop the questions. And sometimes that's when you get some of the best information. But he actually talked about going to a family member or close friend's house and seeing his son show up being high on meth and how much that hurt him. And again, that's one of those things that makes it really hard for people to move out is is having to face all of that they contributed to. Did he make his son use meth? No. Did the fact that he was a meth addict and cook maybe impact what happened to his son, especially if he was in the home for a period of time? Yes, very likely so. And what about all those children that are in the vehicle with those bus that we just had last week? I smoked it the first time on a joint, and uh, then I started snorting it, then I started smoking it, then I started doing IV. Dr. Shukla Jackson went on to share with you how he used meth, what he preferred as far as the method of using meth. What did he share about that situation? Well, the first time he used meth, again, it, he got, it was slipped to him in, on a joint, a marijuana joint, made him sick, and he smoked it the first time. And then he says within a short period of time, he starts snorting it and then eventually doing it intravenously. And that was his preference. And it was funny, not really funny, but he kind of talked about it's like getting a tattoo. Once you get a tattoo, you're going to probably get another one. And he said there's very few people that use meth in, you know, again, his world, you know, once or twice or three times that don't probably become a heavy user. But as we know, not everybody goes as far as becoming an intravenous drug user. And he talked about it as as his preferred method. Um, The last four years of his use, he was IV using, you know, and using lots of meth. Um, And he said it's a different high. You get lots of energy. You talk a lot. You don't sleep. You know, and within seconds, you're feeling all of it. Whereas with smoking it or snorting it, you know, there might take 10 or 15 minutes. And he even went as far as talking about you have shooters dope, you have smokers dope, you have snorters dope. And he says the snorters and smokers is not as stout as a shooter's dope. And he says a shooter, when he does a bump of dope, I say bump, he does a shot, you get a rush. He says, you can automatically, you know, you feel your eyes peel open. You just start breathing heavier and you can feel it from, you know, I mean, as soon as you stick the needle in your arm. And he says for smokers and snorters, it takes 10 to 15 minutes of that to really start kicking in. And we've heard that with some of the other people we've talked about, about Mm -hmm. that literally like the moment the needle goes in, there's a there's an intense rush, which I never want to know what it is because that's part of what their draw is to this and that makes it so much harder for them to get off you know get off and stop it because again you talk about rituals the rituals of preparing your your injection kit can also be part of that addiction you know just like someone maybe who smokes cigarettes and the way they hold the 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 carton or the whatever you call it, what do you call it? Mm-hmm. The carton. <laughs> the carton or the, the way they light it or the way or they, you the know. pack. Yeah, yeah. so, but there, there's there's rituals behind all of mm-hmm. this. And for somebody that loves inje- injecting, you know, there's probably a high that goes along with this whole getting everything together and then mm-hmm. heating it up and then, you know, putting it in the needle and then trying to find a vein. And that's part of it. And he goes on to say too, snorting burned. Yeah. And, and he did not like that. No, and we've we've actually talked about people who burned out that middle part of their nose before. That's right. You know, it burns so much to the point that it'll burn through your your body, like mm-hmm. your 
the membranes uh, in the nose. Right. And we also talked about off mic, the hierarchy within the uh, meth culture as far as the choice you make on how to use the drug, right. whether it's smoking, uh, IV, uh, snorting, we kind of pick up a pattern between some of the 33 as far as their perceptions of who does what right. within that culture as far as selecting what method they use to inject meth. I don't know if people that are intravenously using think of themselves at the top or the bottom of that mm -hmm. hierarchy. Obviously, they're more, you know, committed to their drug use. They're willing to take, you know, the, the physical part of it to a, a different level by using it intravenously. The people that don't use it intravenously and, you know, someone we're going to talk someone we're going to talk about soon will, you know, talk about someone who tries intravenously and then stops. But there's a lot of people that don't use intravenously that very much look down on people that do. Like those are the junkies. Mm -hmm. I might be high all day, every day, but I am not shooting a needle in my arm. Therefore, I am not a junkie. But from the, the person who intravenously uses perspective, you know, they, they love it. They love it. They love it. They love it. Mm -hmm. Quick rush, but you also, there's a lot of risks in sticking a needle in your arm than it is smoking it. Right. Especially in the era of no needle exchanges and no free needles and all of that controversial stuff that people don't like to talk about. Well, you've just listened to episode one of season two of the podcast, The 33, based on the book Methamphetamine, a love story written by my guest and co-host, Dr. Rashi Shukla. I'm your host, Dr. David Nelson, a professor of mass communication. In our next episode, we will talk specifically about Mia, another one of the 33 that Dr. Shukla interviewed for her book. Join us then as we look into the darkness of those who battle with their addiction to meth.